Welcome to the Tuesday Night IBS Podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Roberts and Johanna Ruddy. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of fertility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversations about their impacts on the patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. everyone. Welcome to another Tuesday night IBS podcast. We're so excited to be back with you for another great podcast episode. Hope that you joined us in July for our webinar featuring Dr. Bill Che and Kate Scarlotta and our friends over at Diet Versus Disease when we were discussing SIBO and um, kind of the, the misconceptions around it, the truth about SIBO, how it is diagnosed and appropriate treatments, both from medical management and dietary management. And so today we are building off of that topic and talking and digging a little bit deeper into it with Taylor Hanna from Diet Versus Disease. So I'm so pleased to welcome Taylor, but also so pleased to welcome my co-founder and my new co-host for podcasts going forward. And that is Jeffrey Roberts. Jeffrey, how are you? I'm great. Thank you, Johanna. And Taylor, it's so wonderful to see you again. Yes, lovely to see you both as well. I'm excited to be here. Oh, great. Why don't we get started, actually? So I'm going to ask you to describe SIBO. You know, can you define what SIBO is for people so we we know what we're talking about? Wonderful question. Yeah, so SIBO is an acronym for small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. So what's occurring here is when our bacteria from our colon grow up and multiply into our small intestine, we can develop a condition called small intestinal bacteria overgrowth or SIBO. There's a few different types, which um, we can dive into in, in a future question, if I think so too, and just start with the basics. Um, I do have a fun analogy that I love to share for this one. I always like to refer to SIBO to people as well as like a house party. You're inviting people into your house and eventually this house party gets out of control and they just start pushing into the backyard. Your colon being the house and the backyard being your small intestine and things start to go away. Debris gets left everywhere. And then there are some repercussions or there can be some repercussions from this as well. So if you like a fun analogy, that's what I sometimes use as well. <laughs> That's perfect. That's a really fun analogy. I love it. <laughs> okay. Uh, Johanna, do you want to ask the next question? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great way to describe it, Taylor. Um, for, for people who maybe aren't familiar with SIBO in terms of the symptoms that you're going to be most commonly associated with SIBO, what, what are those symptoms? What does that look like? Yeah, really great question as well. So symptoms can present differently in all in all individuals. Sometimes people will also be asymptomatic, which means they won't have symptoms. But if they are experiencing symptoms, what we'll often see is digestive distress, so either diarrhea or constipation. And the type of SIBO we have will 
also typically be correlated with that. So for example, if you have hydrogen dominant SIBO, you are often more prone to diarrhea. And if you have methane overgrowth, we don't typically say uh, bacterial overgrowth anymore with methane, but methane overgrowth, we will see more people more prone to constipation. Mm -hmm. And then we're also starting to see some hydrogen sulfide overgrowth as well in the literature. And this can also present with looser stools. We often see lots of bloating and gas. Uh, sometimes even regurgitation or bloating from that, the colon putting pressure up on our stomach. And some individuals will also experience brain fog or headaches associated with some of these symptoms too. Um, we can sometimes see uh, malnutrition or deficiencies, vitamin and mineral deficiencies as well with SIBO. Wow. You know, it's, it's funny. So I just got off a plane not that long ago and honestly felt like I had SIBO acting up, although I've never really felt that way before. So, I mean, how does SIBO typically begin? I don't think it began as a result of my flight, but I mean, how does it begin and how common is it? Yeah. So it can be quite common. Again, the literature, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, the exact stats, Joanna might have that too, but it can be quite common. However, we do recommend tests. Don't guess because there's also a lot of overlapping conditions that have very similar symptoms. But in terms of how it can start, there's a variety of risk factors that can contribute. Different surgeries can contribute. Um, there, there could be, for example, diverticular or diverticulitis can increase our risk. Some types of medications or antibiotics have been associated um, with potential increased risk as well. And so those are a variety of factors to look at. And like you said, our symptoms might kind of slowly onset, or for some people, they kind of start one day and maybe ebb and flow. Um, it probably wasn't a, your flight that set it off, but maybe it caused a bit of a flare and a snowball effect from there too. Yeah, I think also a change in the diet while I was traveling yeah. probably exacerbated some of those features. And yes. that's why I felt that way. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, you know, one question that I get a lot from patients is, and it seems like a silly question, but I think it needs to be asked and discussed. And that is, is SIBO IBS, is IBS SIBO, are they one in the same? Can they coexist? Are they different entities? Because there's so much confusion around that. This, the symptoms are so similar. Yes. Oh, I get this question a lot too. And it is really complex because they almost mirror each other or look the same. Yeah. I'll start by saying SIBO is not IBS and IBS is not SIBO. However, a lot of individuals can have both. And the challenging part to kind of tease apart is what symptoms, if you are somebody that has both, are caused by what factors as well. So perhaps we treat SIBO, but we still perceive some other symptoms presenting that perhaps is IBS or another overlapping condition. And um, yes, they're two different entities that often are kind of riddling us at the same time. And so we want to tease apart management of both and being aware that different variables can sometimes flare both up or sometimes contribute to one or the, the other as well. But yes, I often get that question too is, oh, so if I have IBS, does that mean I have, have SIBO and vice versa too? Yeah. yeah that's how, how, how would you then differentiate between the two? If, if like with you be able to make a diagnosis or would your the physician make the diagnosis are, are you able to kind of work with with the, the doctor in order to make the diagnosis 
of either IBS or SIBO? How, how would you go about doing that? Great question. So just for context, I'm a registered dietitian, so I wouldn't make a diagnosis of SIBO. However, I would recommend for individuals to get either an aspirate or a SIBO breath test. Um, we typically recommend lactulose-based breath tests. However, there are some glucose-based on the market too, but a lactulose breath test. So that's where you drink a solution and then you're blowing into a tube so we can test those test tubes. So the bacteria in our gut, they produce gases. And when we take our breath or aspirates at different intervals or different times, we can then measure the approximate amount of bacteria at different places in your digestive tract based on your estimated motility or movement through your gut. And that's how we would look at a diagnosis of SIBO. In terms of then determining which symptoms are caused by SIBO and which are caused by, say, IBS, that's a really challenging one to tease apart, but working closely with your practitioner, doing some tracking, food symptom tracking, lifestyle symptom tracking can also help with differentiating. And sometimes it will be both are causing both symptoms too. Um, as well, I know that SIBO symptoms are very excruciating for a lot of people and symptoms and IBS as well can be very problematic. Um, but there's no black and white answer in terms of a test to say this is an IBS symptom and this is a SIBO symptom either, but it, the testing can help with uh, SIBO diagnoses. You know, yeah, you mentioned using lactulose in order and then breathing from that. Yeah. So I, I'm personally lactose intolerant. And the test that I had when I was first diagnosed was I actually uh, takes took some um, lactose drink and then they waited to measure uh, my blood. But now I know they also use a breath test. So just to be clear, lactulose is different than lactose. And the testing we would do for a lactose intolerance breath test, and actually I should add an H. pylori breath test, sometimes get mixed up with SIBO too. There are different types of testing that we do for lactose intolerance, H. pylori, which is also a breath test compared to SIBO. So sometimes I have and say, oh, but my SIBO test came back negative. I did a breath test and it was an H. pylori test or my lactose test came back positive. So I have SIBO. So that's a really good question. They are all different tests, although some of them have similar names and acronyms and, and the, the study themselves or the lab itself seems the same. Yeah, that's a, that's a great differentiation, Jeff. I, I, do, I wouldn't have thought about that, but you're right. There are so many things. And on the topic of testing, um, you know, I'm sure, you know, working in the field that you're in Taylor, that there is a little bit of controversy right around these breath tests and the accuracy of them. Can they be trusted? Are they valid results? Um, you know, is there a high error for positive results when there truly is not a SIBO problem going on? How do you, how do we make sense of all of this chatter and, and what's true here? Yes, there is definitely a lot of different or mixed opinions. However, the research does show these tests can be have high efficacy, which means they can be really accurate to a certain extent, especially if we are implementing them properly. So that means making sure we're following the prep properly and then completing the test properly. And that's sometimes the challenging part if we are perhaps not familiar with the prep. And so we maybe the days leading up are taking certain supplements that can throw off the results or we're not following the prep 
nutrition and diet as well. So that's where we're going to see a lot more false positives or false negatives is in that prep place as well. Um, as with any test, there still can be some potential false positives and false negatives, but we want to take into context the entire person. So if they're breath test comes back positive, plus they're symptomatic, plus these other features, they have the risk factors. That combination can be a great place to start for diagnoses, and it can be um, a high standard as well. Uh, However, in terms of implementing it into standard clinical practice, it is in some clinics, but a lot of those clinical pathways take a while to adjust and adapt to I was um, looking at a study recently, and I think it says it takes on average 12, 7 to 12 years for some of our new testing to get into those clinical practice guidelines um, across the board as well. And so it, as time goes on, we'll likely continue to see that implemented into more standard practice too. Yeah, that's great. I, you know, you said something that was really interesting in that explanation, and that was proper testing prep. And I'm very curious if we can talk about that because I think that that's probably, I think a lot of listeners are going to go, wait, what? I don't just drink something and blow into what that, what prep, what does that entail? You said several things around prep. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. Let's that's your, yes, let's do that. I am. (laughs) Um, it's one thing I see often as well. So I think it's such a great topic. Um, for up to four weeks before the test, we recommend um, or waiting at least four weeks after, for example, a colonoscopy. So if you've had a recent colonoscopy, which we do recommend if it's uh, if it's um, needed and clinically required, we also don't recommend doing a test immediately after taking a round of antibiotics. So if you have had an infection or you're on antibiotics for whatever reason, you're also going to have the most accurate results if you wait about four weeks after that. If you're able to discontinue medications such as PPIs, we will sometimes recommend that in tests. However, sometimes people aren't able to, so we will take that into consideration when interpreting results too. Uh, Probiotics, a lot of people are taking a lot of supplements and they're not even sure what's in them sometimes. Yeah. But probiotics, um, any laxatives you might be taking if you're more IBSC, we typically recommend discontinuing some of those for three days to two weeks, depending on which supplement it is as well. Uh, your test prep kit will come with specific instructions with the four weeks, the two weeks, and the three days before. And then prior to your test, you'll also be asked to consume a very, a very restricted diet, just leading up to, to minimize any other carbohydrate consumption and um, aspiration and gases too. And so following that thoroughly is very important. Yes. We don't just want you to drink the solution and do the breath test, um, or it can be inaccurate in that sense. Um, but yes, get your package. If you're, if you've received it, read the instructions, ask your practitioner for any guidance. If you're not clear on anything and that um, will help for much more accurate results. That's great. Yeah. That's really interesting. I had never thought about the prep for this. So that's very, very helpful information. Let's move on. Let's move on to treatment. How does somebody, how do you approach somebody to treat them for SIBO? You know, what is your first line of um, defense, let's say, in order to prevent uh, SIBO from coming back? And and how do you, you know, move on so that you're feeling better? Yeah, really great question. So the 
the gold standard for SIBO treatment is going to be typically, I'm in Canada, so we say rifaximin, but in the US it's uh, zifaxin, uh, potentially in combination with another prescription, perhaps neomycin, if um, there's methane overgrowth. Again, the actual prescription will come from your gastroenterologist or your uh, PA or physician who's following you. Uh, antibiotics are the gold standard um, for treatment of SIBO. So we would typically recommend those, um, as prescribed. And then we also will pair that at times with dietary changes for symptom management. So to be clear, we don't treat SIBO with dietary changes. The dietary changes are to help with symptom management and the antibiotics are for treating SIBO. And then post-SIBO, we can also utilize nutrition to help support our symptoms and our digestive tract as well, prevent malnutrition, replace any nutrition deficiencies, that type of thing. But the gold standards is going to be those antibiotics. There's a few studies for the elemental diet, but to be honest, they're fairly minimal. And so we usually um, would recommend antibiotics as that first first gold standard uh, recommendation. Is it possible that you could aggravate your condition by, you know, adding antibiotics? I mean, some people might think, you know, did antibiotics actually put me in this situation, you know, as a result of that? Um, could you talk a little bit about antibiotics and, and whether that can make things worse? Yeah, so antibiotics can potentially be a risk factor for development of SIBO, but ironically, it is also still going to be used in SIBO. We are going to target um, the correct type of antibiotics for SIBO as well. And Zafaxin or Rifaximin is a gut-directed or gut-specific antibiotic, I should say. And um, your symptoms can worsen during treatment. That can be something that we try to set people up for to have that expectation. We may develop antibiotic associated diarrhea, or some people refer to it as like die off type symptoms, but symptoms from having, being on antibiotics, you may experience that worsening before improvement, um, as well, of course, to a certain extent, if you're having really severe symptoms, definitely chat with your doctor about that. But sometimes we do see worsening before improvement symptom wise too, and that can be common and something to expect. That's really helpful. I, my, you know, I know that there's some illnesses like uh, an overgrowth of C. difficile. It may be caused by an antibiotic, but you actually treat it with an antibiotic and usually a different antibiotic. So I, yeah. that's a very good uh, analogy in terms of how this works as well for SIBO. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about nutrition? You mentioned a little bit about changing your diet and we talked a little bit about the antibiotic, but what what would you change in your diet? Um, either when you're on the antibiotic or after the antibiotic, what, what changes happens there? Yeah. So what I would typically look at, and this might be individual or would be, I wouldn't say might, it would be individual to each person. A lot of the times I do see a lot of practitioners, including myself, pursue a low FODMAP diet because we see a lot of overlapping IBS as well. Uh, just in case anyone's not familiar with low FODMAP, it is low in fermentable carbohydrates. So FODMAP is an acronym for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. You don't need to memorize those by any means, but it is an acronym. And by minimizing some of those, we can see improvements in constipation, diarrhea, bloating, and gas, and some of those symptoms, especially if we have that overlapping IBS as well. So we'll sometimes pursue that 
FODMAP elimination and reintroduction and maintenance. So low FODMAP is not a forever thing. It is a a three-piece diet in terms of the reintroductions. Sometimes we'll look at tweaking fibers. Sometimes we'll look at hydration or other vitamins and minerals and nutrition as well. And if we're seeing a lot of malnutrition at the time, we might not pursue that low FODMAP to a little bit later on too from a symptom perspective. So that's where it will be unique to each person. Um, But we'll look at tweaking some of those factors to help with symptoms as well as overall health and nutrition, nutrition status. So obviously this is something that needs to be worked on with a dietitian like yourself who understands how to manage this, because this is not really something that uh, most doctors would be familiar with. They might be familiar with in terms of the diagnosis, but in terms of the treatment and managing it on a day-to-day basis, also FODMAP, um, maybe you can speak just briefly about that in terms of you know, managing FODMAP on your own, or even trying to manage this on your own. Is it, is it possible? Do you recommend that? I might be biased, but no, I'm just teasing. The, the data does show that the effectiveness of nutrition therapy is significantly higher with the support of a registered dietitian that is specifically trained in the low FODMAP diet or digestive health themselves. It is very complex. And there is a high, or there is a risk of malnutrition or over elimination or development of food fears. And so we really want to explore all of those factors and take all of them into consideration. And we also want to um, ensure it's implemented properly. There's a lot of pieces on Google and a lot of different handouts on Google I've seen that say this is high FODMAP and this is low, and they're not quite accurate or they're missing pieces that foods aren't just high and low, they contain FODMAPs, but we may still be able to eat them in certain amounts and they still be below that high FODMAP threshold. So if we think of our digestive tract like a cup and we tolerate this much of something, there's no need to completely eliminate it. We may as well incorporate it and consume that nutrient without even reaching our tipping point. And so we don't want to over eliminate either. And so that's the part that can be really helpful to have the support. And quite honestly, it's so overwhelming already having SIBO or IBS or a combination that having that support in terms of what can we eat, what can we find, what can we put together can be, can be really invaluable for people. That's a beautiful segue Taylor into our next uh, question, which is, what if you don't have access to a GI trained dietitian nutritionist that can really help you with this process? Because as you said, it's complex and it can be really daunting for patients who are in the midst of a chronic illness. And so if they don't have access, their doctor says, yes, this would be beneficial. Go find someone. And you're like, oh, I don't know. Where do I go? Where do they go? And what have you guys done at diet versus disease to address this need? Yes. So if you are in search of a guts trained dietitian at diet versus disease, we are a global gut health resource. We have dietitians across Canada, the US, Australia, UK, Spain, uh, Portugal. I'm trying to think where else, Uh, but we do have global resources for dietitians, gut-directed hypnotherapists. We also partner with various resources such as Nerva for our gut-brain access work as well. And so we would welcome you to 
take a look at our website or Facebook or Instagram, see if you feel you'd be a good fit for our team as well. We have a variety of programs to meet people where they're at and where what might be reasonable given their diagnoses or conditions. And with that, I would also honestly recommend the Menashe University app. They have really great resources there and they do have a list of Menashe or FODMAP trained dietitians. Um, and we always want people to have access to the re- as many resources as they can when they're going through this journey. So I definitely welcome all of that as well. Um, and again, we're diet versus disease. So feel free to uh, Google us as well if you're wanting a little bit more information on us and the team. Yeah. yeah. I think it's important to mention that there's all these resources. Mm -hmm. However, I mean, there are organizations that actually work with patients and understand how to manage them. And that's the important thing. It doesn't have to be diet versus disease. It has to be somebody who's trained in this. And I think, you know, referring to the list at Monash for all the uh, dietitians that are trained on the low FODMAP diet is very key as well. Um, You know, we hear from a lot of patients who end up malnourished or they have something, you know, called RFED. So they're restricting their diets. And do you see patients who have SIBO, do you see them in the same trouble? Do they end up down that path sometimes as well? Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't even say sometimes. I would say sometimes more often than not, we will see food fears develop understandably because symptoms are horrible and people don't want to feel that way. And sometimes we villainize foods um, or over villainize foods that we are associating with our symptoms that might not have been uh, a contributor as well. And so we definitely want to work through, yeah, those food fears or potential ARFID or uh, food anxieties uh, through a variety of resources too. And that's also where having a a psychologist or mental health therapist on your team or on your health team can be really valuable. That's also trained in the realm of IBS can be really valuable and SIBO potentially too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, the Rome Foundation, shout out to the Rome Foundation's GI Psych directory, which is public facing at um, romegipsych.org, which is a great searchable directory for Uh, behavioral health therapists who are trained in working with patients with these conditions. So they're not addressing necessarily, you know, a psychiatric condition. They're looking at the symptom related depression, anxiety, hypervigilance, all of those things that are associated with a chronic GI illness. So great resource as well for patients and providers. Yes, that one is. I love their breathing. I often, well, I use all of their, the Rome Foundation resources, but they have a really fabulous breathing, a diaphragmatic breathing video I often yeah. refer to. Yeah. I think that's yes, Dr. Megan uh, Reel's video. Dr. <laughs> Megan Reel is famous yeah. for her uh, diaphragmatic breathing. Um, I use that on my website as well because it's great. It really is great. It's funny, you know, it was one of the first things that I learned uh, when I was trying to find resources for myself for IBS. This was a very long time ago. And we had somebody come in and talk to us about diaphragmatic breathing. And it honestly is such a helpful uh, tool in any situation because you can do it quietly, whether you're in a meeting, whether you're in a classroom, (laughs) whether you're sitting on the couch with your family and you don't want to disturb anybody and you can just kind of manage that. So I think it's very helpful. I mean, I don't think SIBO is different in that respect because you have, you know, bloating and discomfort and so forth and try and, you know, work your way through it by, by breathing. So that's a great resource. Yeah. yeah um, so for patients who think that they have SIBO, what's the first thing they do? Do they reach out to a dietitian? Do they reach out to their doctor? 
Where do they go? Good question. I often recommend reaching out to their doctor. A lot of the times, um, if you've been with a gastroenterologist and maybe all your red flag indicators have been ruled out, you might no longer be attached to a gastro as well. So chatting with your doctor about seeing if you can get a breath test, if not a referral to a dietitian. Uh, lots of dietitians are also able to order. However, um, again, that treatment piece, it's really important to have your doctor on board, especially with the antibiotic prescription and follow-up too. Um, but if your physician maybe isn't comfortable ordering, you can always reach out to one of the dietitians who are often able to um, order you a breath test as well. So those would be a few options to look at. Um, or asking your gastro if you're still connected with a gastro. But I do see a lot of clients who have been discharged potentially because a lot of those other red flag indicators have been ruled out. Yeah. You know, we coach a lot of patients on how should they speak with their doctor? You know, what kind of words would resonate with your doctor and, you know, pique their interest in order to investigate further? Can you, do you have like an elevator pitch in terms of how patients should speak to their provider, whether it's their family doctor, their gastroenterologist, even to a dietitian when they first meet them? What kind of language resonates in order to describe, you know, what it is they're looking for? Really, at the end of the day, Patients are looking for a better quality of life, and some are, are better at describing their symptoms, and others are not so great, <laughs> and they have others speak for them, which isn't necessarily the best situation. But, you know, what, what would be your elevator pitch that patients should use? Well, this is a good question. I haven't thought about this, but... I definitely often recommend clients be familiar with a few terms. So one that often um, you'll hear in the medical world is distension and bloating. And I'd like to just quickly mm -hmm. talk about the difference because okay. as providers, we perceive that differently, but to most in the public, it's the same thing. So distension is that physical expansion. So inches are changing. So you might be able to describe to your doctor, I have distension after, uh, in the evenings or after meals, it's like two inches of distension potentially bloating is the feeling of ballooning, but we might not have physical distension with bloating. And sometimes we have bloating and distension together. And so those would be some terms to be potentially familiar with, especially in terms of your in your house. So, oh, I might have distension, but I'm not feeling bloating. I hear that from some clients too. And being familiar with what your experience is. I would also recommend being familiar with the Bristol stool chart. So that's a scale from one to seven. Health providers use those very regularly. And I've had clients come in and say, my doctor asked me what my Bristol was, and I had no idea what they were talking about. Um, and it's how we categorize stool from constipated to diarrhea, I would be familiar with that as well. And then you can communicate to your doctor. I'm having seven type seven stools um, five to six days per week over the last three months, for example. And having some of that quantitative data, not that I want us to hyper-focus on it either, but it can be really valuable. Because if we come in and say, well, I've had a little bit of diarrhea and my stomach has been a little bit gassy, that from a clinician standpoint, doesn't really help us understand the severity of what you might be experiencing, as well as the longevity. So how long you might have been, so how long have you been experiencing? What are those symptoms between diarrhea, constipation, that bloating or distension? Um, and then pain as well can be a helpful one to categorize. And then final, finally, also mentioning how it impacts your quality of life. 
because that um, can be also help make meaning of it for clinicians too. So hopefully that's helpful. It's not a quick elevator speech, but a few common terms to use when discussing with um, your provider that might be helpful. I have a feeling that little that elevator pitch is going to be viewed over and over and over again because it's exactly <laughs> the kind of thing that people want to know. How do they speak to their providers? Yeah, um, that's fantastic. Maybe, yeah, it made me think something about people don't re- necessarily realize, you know, what a registered dietitian is capable of doing. It's not something that you can just go to community college and pick up. I mean, you've gone to school for many, many years. You're very, very trained very specialized skills that you have. Could you just describe for some people who aren't familiar with that? Because I think some people minimize what a dietitian might actually be able to do for them. Yes, absolutely. And you're, yes, you're absolutely right. Sometimes people say, oh, you, you cook, teach cooking classes, but I I do love (laughs) cooking. Don't get me wrong. But um, yeah, so a registered dietitian is somebody who's gone or has a degree in, so gone to university in science and nutrition. We've com- typically completed a internship as well with different rotations and then a specialty. Many dietitians also have completed their master's, whether in nutrition um, or in health education, for example. So my master's in, is in health education um, as well. And then our clinical practice hours on top of it. So every year we do competency renewals to ensure that we are competent in our area. That does vary state to state and province to province and country to country. But for the most part, we have licensing bodies that oversee and ensure that we are staying up to date and competent as well. So you're correct. It's a little bit more complex than I think sometimes the word dietitian or or, um, dietitian nutritionist, which is in the community realm often used. Uh, sometimes people uh, think maybe it's like a weekend course and what does this yeah. diet know um, or how are they going to be able to help me? But there are uh, a lot of different places in terms of nutrition therapy, support, advocacy, testing that we can definitely support people in. That's wonderful. Thank you very much for for saying that because um, it's very helpful for us. I mean, Johanna and I obviously understand the importance of having a registered dietitian on your team who understands you and really can understand all the the medical jargon as well. You're very helpful at explaining that to patients as well, who may not understand what the gastroenterologist was actually saying or even their family doctor. Yeah, there's so many terms and acronyms that get tossed around. Yeah, really great. Um, Any final words, Taylor, for, let's say, for providers um, who might be seeing patients coming in, you know, with complaints of these sorts of symptoms, any clinical kind of pearls of wisdom for them to consider as they're working with these patients? Oh, great. You guys have some really good questions today. Uh, (laughs) Clinicians. I would say test don't guess. Sometimes I do see overtreatment at times, which can sometimes result in negative responses potentially. I would also say don't be afraid to reach out to other clinicians. We are also happy to help um, and support you in your learning too. I think it's a really important area that many clinicians are perhaps interested in. And in terms of additional training, I know Kate Scarlata has great clinician training. So does Monash University. I encourage individuals who are maybe seeing a lot of that with patients or are interested in working in that area to get trained trained and comfortable. And you do have to practice in the area to get comfortable. So also um, reaching out to clinicians and other practitioners that are 
are perhaps trained in that area to help support you if you're unsure about anything too. Okay. How about uh, any pearls of wisdom for patients uh, with either SIBO or IBS? You know, what, what haven't we mentioned that you think is important for them to know? I like to often end for my patient population or client population with a, you've got this, you are not alone. Uh, keep at it. There's going to be ups and downs throughout your journey, but we are here for you. And um, we being the practitioners that uh, support digestive health and um, on the Again, your best is going to look different every day, how you're feeling will look better every day, but there are different management strategies that can lead to more and more better days. Wonderful. Uh, Ending on a very positive note. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much, Taylor, for joining us today for this great and really uh, practical Uh, episode. I really appreciate it. If uh, any of our listeners missed the amazing webinar, it is on the website at TuesdayNightIBS.com under webinars. So you can grab it there and watch it on your own time. Um, Some really great information was shared on that webinar as well from Dr. Che and Kate and um, and you, Taylor, and your colleague as well. So thanks again for doing that. And until next time, everyone, take good care. We'll see you again real soon. Bye now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Stay subscribed for more bonus content and an all-new episode of the Tuesday Night IBS podcast each month. Be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guests and encourage you to join in on the conversation. Find our latest webinars on our website at TuesdayNightIBS.com. In addition, check out both of our pages on Facebook and YouTube at Tuesday Night IBS. And find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversations about these important topics. See you next month.